Welcome to this podcast for the new Nordic Lexicon. We are in Aarhus with students and researchers from Aarhus University, Gdansk, and Greifswald University. And the subject of this podcast will be the Baltic Sea region and the Nordics. And we have a few researchers who will be helping us with this, who we will introduce along the way. The New Nordic Lexicon is a collection of articles, podcasts and films based on research about the Nordic region and the world. This is the first New Nordic Lexicon podcast. What is the Baltic Sea region and how has it changed since the invasion of Ukraine? The New Nordic Lexicon brings young people together with researchers in a dialogue on Nordic society, history and culture. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. My name is Soleil Liasathir. I am from the Faroe Islands and I am currently a master's student at Aarhus University where I am studying philosophy with elective English. And I am here because I'm very interested in the work that the New Nordic Lexicon is doing since I am personally interested in the culture and the Nordic countries. My name is Chance. I'm from the U.S. I've lived in South Korea about the last 10 years, and I came here with my wife for a master's program at Aarhus University in the Danish School of Media and Journalism. The Baltic Sea region can be defined differently, but for now, we'll simply say that the states that are in the Council of the Baltic Sea states today includes all the Nordic countries, so Denmark, Finland, Sweden, Norway, and Iceland, and the three Baltic nations, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia, as well as Poland, Germany, and the representative of the EU. Russia and Belarus were suspended and then withdrew from the Council of Baltic Sea States shortly after the start of the invasion of Ukraine. So Alexander, turning to you, you're an interdisciplinary historian and scientific director of the Interdisciplinary Research Center for the Baltic Sea Region IFZO, which is based at Greifswald University. What does it mean to be an interdisciplinary historian? Well, I had to become a historian that is not limited to only the approaches and concepts and sources in the canonical historical research, but uh, I try to include for instance, the understanding of security that is used in, in international relations studies, or I try to uh, uh, think about regionalism and political science so that I can actually integrate different approaches that are useful to do research on the Baltic Sea region. So it's interesting because are not all countries, land masses tied together by the sea? So what is particular about the BSR in comparison to, say, the southern Chinese region that you have also studied? I actually see the Ch South China Sea region as a reference region to the Baltic Sea region because you have comparable small societies around a water and a lot of exchange across the water. You have with China uh, a comparable global power factor as in the Baltic Sea region with Russia. And uh, in this regard, um, I think we we have very similar situation where we can actually have a look into how these regions were formed and how they set up their integrative structures. 
So, of course, it's difficult with such a large area. We can't cover its entire history in today's recording, but could you give us a brief overview of some of the historical reasons and periods that have tied the Baltic Sea region together? When you ask for uh, for for certain kind of periods that that shape the region, then of course it is the Hanseatic League that that starts in the late Middle Ages, and uh, here we have not really some kind of power politics of the big realms around the the sea, but it is rather. Uh, uh, um, a league of, of certain kind of traders, it's a trading network that then uh, developed into a city network and and describes a certain kind of extension uh, uh, across actually from London and from the Netherlands uh, way into the, the, the area what is today Russia. And um, then we have an age of changing imperial hegemonies. Yeah, so the Swedish uh, idea of a dominium Mars Baltici that was nurtured very much actually uh, also through the spread of uh, Protestantism. Uh, it was spread, uh, uh, of course, also in dominating all the access to the Baltic Sea region, controlling the sound, and of course also limiting Russian influence in in the region. And then. Of course, we have some kind of religious coherences that describes a very different uh, uh, extent of the Baltic Sea region and constitution of the Baltic Sea region uh, um, because we we have uh, an orthodox space in the east. We have overlapping this orthodox space with uh, uh, with uh, with the Protestant space in 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 the, in the west and in the northern region, and of course we have the very huge Catholic uh, communities also still uh, uh, present and, and, and very lively uh, around Poland and, and, and south, uh, down to southern Europe. And uh, what we should not forget, and that is also quite important and often overlooked in, in the grand narratives, is that we have a lot of dynastic relations actually across these different uh, areas. We have a Swedish king on the Polish throne. We have a Saxonian king on the Polish throne. Actually, the Polish one was quite interesting, often changing. Uh, uh, and, and, and this makes... The, this all contributes to to how the region was shaped and how it it became beginning, and um, but this is of course the historian speaking now with all these wonderful historical examples. But then you jump into uh, the 20th century, and what you see then is actually that the that the the region becomes shaped through institutional structures that were set up by these different. Uh, societies bordering uh, the Baltic Sea. And um, you can uh, look into the first attempt of uh, dealing with the environmental issues in the region, and that is then the HELCOM and the Hel Hel Helsinki Commission in the 1970s to set up actually to to speak or to have a communicative point uh, to speak about the problems of the Baltic Sea, its fishery and its health, its, uh, its, its uh, uh, environmental protection. Just to introduce Kashmir here, um, you are a professor at the Scandinavian Studies Department at Gdańsk University in Poland, and you have written about the Baltic Sea region in various contexts. And in some of your papers, 
you have talked about the Baltic Sea region builders or regional actors. And who or what do you mean by this? And can you tell us something about them? We have to go back to the Helsinki Commission uh, initiative from 1974, which um, was the first initiative in the Baltic Sea region. And this is one of the first institutions that actually put the modern shape of the Baltic Sea region on the map, not only on the real map, but on the mental map of all the people who were stakeholders in Baltic Sea regionalism later on. Uh, when I talk about region builders, I also mean politicians who are active, for instance, in the Nordic Council, in the Nordic Council of Ministers, who saw that perhaps the Nordic framework is not sufficiently big to, to accommodate wishes of the peoples living across the Baltic Sea, to live in peaceful coexistence and relative wealth enjoyed by the Nordics. And there were very many initiatives of the, of the Nordic politicians, of the Nordic Council as a collective body, to extend the great Northern Europe concept to the Baltic Sea region as well, to, to, to the Baltic states as well. The initial idea from the 19 70s and then from 1989 and 2001, 2004, when most of the countries became members of the European, apart from Russia, uh, was to cooperate with this biggest neighbor on the Baltic Sea. The neighbor which had quite a numerous population living on the Baltic Sea, in Kaliningrad, on St. Petersburg, and somehow uh, these people felt also connected to the sea, while at the same time being citizens of the Russian Federation. Uh, this dream has definitely been deflated in 2014 and has been shattered now because of the war in Ukraine, which the Russian Federation decided to wage. The Nordic region is part of the Baltic Sea region, connected in historical, cultural and economic ways. This podcast is about the Baltic Sea region and what has changed since the invasion of Ukraine. So yes, the invasion of Ukraine has come up multiple times in the conversation. And previously, we took a look at the Baltic Sea region prior to that invasion. And I remember shattered dreams or dreams shattered was mentioned. Can we take, an could we take another look at some of the hopes and the aims for the Baltic Sea region at the point before the current conflict, and what has happened to those hopes since the invasion of Ukraine? Well, I think the hopes were very high, and at the same time, the hopes were very realistic after the Cold War. I mean, people, peoples around the Baltic Sea were tired of the divisions, but they were also living uh, 
in the divisions made up by the logic of the Cold War, uh, where you had two blocks. You had a bipolar world system with the big powers and, and the satellites of the big powers. What happened uh, in the Baltic Sea region was phenomenal because people who, and scientists, the epistemic community, they seized the historical opportunity, historical window of opportunity to redefined their future, take the future in their hands and redefine the world they lived in, in a peaceful manner without the big powers interfering too much. This is the, well, uh, if you, if you again look at the theories of region building, you speak of a transition from old regionalism to new regionalism. The old regionalism was about big powers and big countries realistically, uh, having um, agreements to for a common cause, for common trade, or for defense against the external evil, whereas the new regionalism focused rather o o on the soft security and common good and common challenges. So there, there was a distinctive change in the language that happened in the early 1990s, how you define the world in which you live. Is it full of dangers or is it full of opportunities? And I think this dream of a, a world full of opportunities, which has been created and has furnished our imaginaries of Baltic Sea regionalism in the 1990s, was an ex um, was was a very formative moment for a whole generation uh, like us, who has started to believe in the world being able to do without wars and conflicts that are openly resorting to the use of, of a military force. Now I think this is ending, and this is a problem that we have to, to cope with when we have the invasion in Ukraine. What I wanted also to point out on this idea that maybe something has changed, as Kazik just uh, mentioned it. Nevertheless, certain points have not changed due to the Russian war in, in, in Ukraine, but actually they, they worked as an accelerator for some hopes that, for instance, when it comes to energy transition, when it comes to the security architecture of the region, these are really points that that were already on the agenda before, and these were tied to certain kind of hopes how to create a, a region here and more security in the region, uh, uh, and of course uh, a common energy market or something like that. And now they are actually on focus, and now we are actually even drive them more forward so that that the situation is is changing and you can see that uh, uh, that these the the core of these uh, topics they are still there the only thing that is different and you might experience some more of disparity within the region because there are so different ideas and interpretation of the way how to transform actually into a sustainable region, into an, in, into a region that uh, experiences energy uh, security and energy supply security and that actually experiences a stronger security architecture within the region. So that acceleration with Russia as the aggressor, has that made that acceleration 
for the Baltic Sea region, the Baltic Sea countries to come together more closely in certain issues that you just mentioned, military coming together for a common goal? Has Russia become that other to identify against Alexander? Uh, I mean, Russia always was the other in in, in this region. I, I guess because if you if you look at all the different uh, policies uh, uh, that were running, they were always running in 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 the in the awareness of uh, Russia is not part of the EU or Russia is not part of of any of the other uh, uh, networks, the, uh, political networks, and so on, and alliances. So Russia was always the other, and you could. See See that actually that you have certain kind of neighborhood programs set up, or or uh, even the northern dimension uh, uh, idea is is really something. How do we deal and integrate Russia into these political networks and uh, and these special ways of treating Russia? Were of course also. Uh, fostering the idea that Russia has to be treated specially. Um, so uh, with this war in Ukraine, of course, Russia is excluded immediately out of all these political initiatives and uh, is even more alien, uh, alienated by themselves, actually, uh, uh, to, to all these programs. And in so far, I would say, Yes, it uh, it helped actually to unify, but um, all the countries in the Baltic Sea region wouldn't actually have a common ground if there wouldn't have been already set something up before. Yeah, so we have institutional structures that evolved over decades now. So we can go back again to Helcom in the 1970s, where we have the long experience of. Uh, working together on problems. And of course, this common ground that we have developed also since the 1990s and the 2000s is now helping to find even faster this unity against an aggressor like Russia. So as already mentioned, Russia and Belarus were suspended and withdrew from the Council of the Baltic Sea States quite soon after Russia's invasion of Ukraine in 2022, which, Kazik, you have differentiated the two in a recent policy paper by calling it the full-blown invasion. So to, to look at that juxtaposition, why wasn't Russia expelled from CBSS when it went into Crimea back in 2014? Couldn't that also be classed as an invasion? This is a very good question, and I think uh, politicians, um, high officials, high representatives of different country in the council would have problems answering why did they didn't act earlier. I think um, the question of um, having Russia at the table and having and this being a price to pay was uh, handled differently at that time. And of course, uh, Russia, well, you could say not only 2014, but 2008 should have been a bell that rang when parts of Georgia were annexed by uh, the Russian Federation. And when uh, Nadnistria was also a part of Moldova, was also um, um in, under heavy influence of, of Russian military. Uh, so, well, this bell should have rang earlier. It didn't. Uh, and I think many of the higher officials regret that 
development that it, they didn't act earlier. But on the other hand, uh, well, uh, even though Council of the Baltic Sea States is based on a very democratic principle, one country, one voice, it's the reality of politics in the Baltic Sea region, like it is in the United Nations as well, and other international organizations, is very often that you the bigger countries have a little bit more of weight when saying something. So as long as uh, there were vested interests of Germany and vested interests of Sweden or Finland to cooperate with Russia, uh, Russia was not suspended. Uh, the violation of human rights in Russia was not enough. Uh, violation of in territorial integrity of uh, Ukraine when Crimea was annexed was not enough because um, political, but first and foremost economic interests were uh, more important. Um, but uh, after 24th of February 2022, I think uh, this was the moment when um, even those who were in favor of the economy being the most important in relations with Russia had to see that, well, there is, there is perhaps uh, something else at stake as well. There is the democratic order of the world and there is uh, the liberal state of our democracies that perhaps may be endangered by that. And as soon as bigger countries change their mind about the Baltic, about the relevance of Russia for uh, their own uh, wealth and well-being, uh, then we had a change decision also in the council. Obviously, we could go on for quite some time, but many thanks to everyone as we wind down today's episode. Does anyone have any concluding comments or observations about what we've discussed that they'd like to say before we call it a day? I think I think what we now have in the Baltic Sea region on the table for Baltic Sea regionalism in the future is not only the idea of a common sea as a common endangered species. But we have an infrastructure uh, within the EU strategy for the Baltic Sea region that also includes two other points, or two other priorities, which is increase prosperity and connect the region. And I think much of it has already been realized. Just think of... Uh, Rail Baltica, which has not only been designed, but parts of it have already been um, actually created via Baltica, the motorway network around the Baltic Sea that uh, has been planned in the 1990s. Um, it has come into existence. Uh, but what I think is also worth not forgetting uh, is that uh, with the war in Ukraine, we have also lost a number of Baltic Sea regionalism friends in Russia itself. I mean, uh, the EU strategy for the Baltic Sea region for 2009 has actually triggered similar initiatives in Russia. There was a Russian Federation strategy for Northwest regions, which was supposed to match the EU strategy. Of course, nobody will remember it now, uh, remembers it now, and will remember it in the future, where all the links with the politicians, with the civil society in Russia, with the businesses in Russia are gone. So I came to think of Eurovision within this context, which is relatively big in Europe. And this has depicted something that's supposed to be or remain unpolitical, which turns out to be very political in the end. 
And I'm thinking specifically about how Russia has participated regularly in the competition until the invasion of Ukraine. And they did not partake in the competition last year, yet Ukraine did. And this has clearly revealed some political um, standpoints. Thank you very much for that example, actually, because um, that is what what uh, I think also happened due to the war of Russia and Ukraine is uh, you cannot almost so any topic that is touching this these somehow these issues uh, they are politicized at the moment yeah they are instrumentalized uh, uh, because um, it is a period of very highly. Uh, politicized issues uh, in in any case. The energy transition will always be an energy transition and it will always be important, but uh, but now it is uh, politicized. The same as with, uh, uh, let's say, with with the remnants, the shared heritage and the remnants of, of, of history uh, uh, of, of the Cold, Cold War era. Yeah. So what are we actually doing with the uh, with the Soviet bases in all the countries in 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 the area, uh, are we keeping them to 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 show uh, uh, further generations something about it, or it, do we now actually destruct them very quickly just to show Russia uh, uh, how how bad they are doing? So what are we doing with that? So everything at the moment, I think, is very highly politicized, even. The, the the NATO membership of Finland and and Sweden and so on, it 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 uh, it it really at at the moment you cannot escape this very much yeah so but I hope that we find actually a way also to to discuss this uh, at a later stage again uh, for the sake of the topic and not for political reasons. I think one of the lessons that you learned from the theories of the so-called critical junctures, is that the developments after them can be put on the positive or negative trajectories. And, uh, well, whichever we choose, in 1989 we were happy to put it on the positive trajectory. Let's hope it won't be put on the negative trajectory now after 2022. Well, of course, many thanks to everybody for participating in today's podcast episode. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank, Thank you, you very much. The researchers you listened to speaking today were Kashmir Muzial from the University of Gdansk and Alexander Drost from Greifswald University. The students you listened to today were Chance Dorland, a journalism student at Aarhus University, and Soleil Aliasdottir, also from Aarhus University. The new Nordic Lexicon podcast series will mainly be in English, with some episodes in Swedish, Danish and Norwegian. Subjects range from the invasion of Ukraine and security in Europe to minority languages in Finland and Sweden. The new Nordic Lexicon is brought to you by the team behind Nordics Info at Aarhus University in Denmark, with students and colleagues from across the Nordics and beyond. The new Nordic Lexicon is supported by the AP Muller Foundation and grew out of the university hub Reimagining Norden in an Evolving World, which was supported by Nordforsk. Music